Welcome to this episode of the Security Clearance Careers Podcast, ClearCast, your source for security clearance, intelligence community, espionage, national security, and defense contracting updates in our exclusive interviews with intelligence community and government leaders. Hello, hello, and thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Security Clearance Careers Podcast. I'm your host, Katie Keller. And today we have Bill Merck on the line, who is a veteran leadership expert and author, and he is going to be sharing tips and advice on improving mental health in the workplace for both employers and employees. And we'll also be discussing how to utilize your previous experiences to enhance career development and mental health. So this is a great story for June, which is Men's Mental Health Awareness Month. But mental health in the workplace goes beyond a stressful day at the office, and it can relate all the way back to your childhood experiences. So is it possible that our childhood can affect both our career and personal development? I think so. And so today we're going to discuss just that. But first, Bill, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm glad to be here. Thank you for having me. Excellent. And I know I, I'm a JMU grad, and so I know that I have a, a fellow Duke on the line. Yes, you do. <laughs> yes. And so today I wanted to start, many agencies have aimed to make mental health a destigmatized topic within the security clearance process and at work as well. And so would you have tips for workplace leaders on taking mental health more seriously and how they may be able to show that to their employees and prospective job seekers or candidates interested in their organization? I think all good leaders, or any leader for that matter, is judged by others in the sense of how effective they are in in their jobs. Do they meet their goals? Do they meet the objectives? Do, are they accomplishing what the organization wants to accomplish? To do that and be effective, it's important that the team that supports you is operating at their optimum effectiveness as well. And mental health is a big, big part of that. How do your employees, how do they come to work every day? How are they feeling about themselves and the, anything else going on in their life? That leads us to uh, my impression of a good leader is one that gets to know their people. They understand each day when their employees come in they, they can just sense how they're feeling. Is there something wrong? Is there something bothering them? And a good leader will delve into that a little bit, not get personal or anything, but just simply asking, you seem a little off today. Is there something happening that I could help with or something like that? Just anything to break the ice and, and see if there's something going on. People really appreciate that, that you noticed that there's something a little off with them that day. Leaders aren't psychologists, psychiatrists, they, they shouldn't start trying to really delve into solving some real complex psychological issue. No, I'm not saying that at all. But just understanding that their employees are having some problems, acknowledging that, and then if it seems serious, encourage them to go to seek some, some help either through the organization that they're a part of or through their own medical network, but to seek some help outside. If it seems more minor, like they just had a spat, maybe just letting them vent for a few minutes will help clear up things. But please don't don't try to solve those problems for them. Just being a good listener will go a long way in, in helping. So having that listening aspect as a leader obviously is really important. And I think just making sure that you're engaged with your workforce. And I know that in today's business environment, and even for defense contractors, which is a 
big bulk of our audience, it can be a little tough working in this hybrid environment and really making sure that you're still being engaged with those employees that are working in a hybrid capacity or working remotely, I think is also really important as well. Yes, it is. And, and an aspect of leadership that's probably near the top of the list is having good communication skills. A good leader is going to be communicating with their employees on a regular basis, listening to those. Communication involves speaking and listening and understanding what's going on. So if it's a hybrid work environment and some of your employees are working at home, as a leader, you need to stay in touch with them, either on the record, off the record, but in some way, continue to have them feel part of the organization, not isolated. Sure. And you also touched on something that I think is really critical from an HR perspective is if an employee is experiencing something or you notice something is a little bit off, highlighting maybe some of those benefits like ERGs, which I know a lot of businesses have today, and making sure that you are pointing your employees in the right direction in that regard. And so improving morale for employees is really important, especially in some of the high intensity environments that some of our contractors listening work in. And so effectively managing burnout. But let's talk about how leaders can improve morale for their employees and maybe some of the consequences if you don't. I, I made a list in, in my book on leadership about the common mistakes leaders make. And I think that list just falls exactly into what you're asking about right now. If leaders do these things, they can create a real morale problem. One of them is micromanaging. If you keep looking at what an employee's doing and critiquing every move they make and trying to tell them how to do their job, they're going to end up showing really no initiative. Their morale's going to go down. They're going to believe that you don't think they have much worth because you're telling them everything to do. They're going to start to shut down and not really produce, expecting you to do it. So micromanaging is a good way to hurt morale right off the bat. Taking credit for the work of others is another thing that's problematic, and that is if if you've done a great thing or something really good and you're proud of it, and then your boss goes to a board meeting and talks about what has been done that was so great and takes credit as if they had done it themselves and do not mention you, that's a, that's a morale killer. Being afraid to make mistakes, some leaders, they're, they're expected to, to lead. They're expected to lead. Employees look to them to make decisions. If the leader is afraid to make mistakes, that will hinder their ability to, to make decisions. They'll be slow to make a decision or they won't make a decision. They'll look to em employees to do it for them. That's a morale killer as well. Uh, employees want to have a leader they can look to that's really in charge of what's going on and not afraid to make mistakes. Don't want to make mistakes, obviously, but can't be fearful of that kind of thing. Expecting consensus on all decisions. If you have a group together and you put something out there and you want the group to opine on it and help with the decision, if it's something really complex and has some maybe some even emotional involvement in it, you're not going to get 100% agreement on everything that you want to do. Don't expect that. In failing to notice employees' achievements in some public way is, is not a good thing either. If you've done something really well 
and there's an opportunity for your boss to commented on it in a public way, that is really a morale booster, but it has a lot more impact if you compliment that employee in some public form for a job really well done. The biggest thing is communication, having the employees know you, understand you, and uh, you and know that, that you understand them and where they're coming from. I think one of the best things a boss can do is be predictable. Don't come in in the morning and have your employees guessing which side of the bed you got up on. You want the employees that work for you when you're not there, if you're on leave or if you're ill or for whatever reason you're not there and something happens that they need to make a decision. You don't want the employees to worry about, well, if I make this decision, will it be something my boss will approve of when they come back or will I be in trouble for for doing this? You want your employees to know how you think about things, what your goals are and how you approach things and be consistent in how you approach decision making and the things that you're doing so that when you're gone and they have to make a decision, they won't worry about, well, is is my boss going to like this when they get back? Because they know that if they were there, the decision you're making would be the same as something that they would do. So consistency is important. Yeah. And that, that's a great point about the whole predictability piece and that coupled with creating a culture where failure is not apocalyptic almost in a sense It's okay for you to fail because it means we're learning and it means that we're one step closer to the direction of some sort of solution, whatever problem you're trying to solve. And working in an environment where you're not anxious because of a failure, I think is a really easy way to to keep your employees and retain those employees. Going a little farther with what you just said, if an employee is willing to acknowledge they made a mistake, that goes a long way with the person, their supervisor or whoever that they report to. That goes a long way. I had a boss once that I was present when there was an employee that had done something that wasn't great. And the boss was really giving him a hard time about it. And he kept making excuses and trying to say, well, this happened and that happened. And it just went on for a little bit. And I could see my boss getting more and more exasperated. And he just really was almost turning red in the face and yelling at the employee. And then finally the employee admitted, okay, okay, made a mistake. And he he left. And after the employee left, my boss turned to me and he said, I probably got a little carried away with this, with this guy. But the problem is if, if a person won't admit that they made a mistake, they're likely to, to make that mistake again. And so if somebody has made a mistake and they just acknowledge it and say they've learned something from it and it won't happen again, he said, I'm perfectly satisfied with that because I know they've learned and they won't do it again. But if a person refuses to admit that they messed up, that's not good. That's not good because they will do it again. Yeah, that that's a great point. And so I'd like to talk a little bit about some of the things that you've authored and what your philosophy of life is. Well, the one of the books that I wrote, Breadcrumbs, Finding a Philosophy of Life, that, that was a, an exercise that I really enjoyed. I was thinking about why are we who we are? What causes us to view the world, to see the world as we do? Why is one person a Republican, another person is a Democrat? Why is one person a member of this religious organization and somebody a part of another? Why are some people just nicer to be around 
than others? Why are some people kind of seem sort of mean? And a lot of that, I believe, goes back to childhood experiences. What environment a child was raised in? Who are the adults around that child when they were growing up? And what were their views of life? And what did they impart to the child? A child in their very early years, they don't have any experience. They don't have a way to compare or contrast opinions that the adults around them are showing them and telling them. So they just absorb what they hear and see is this is the way it is. And it's not until a little bit later in life when they start to gain experience and through grade school, then high school, maybe college, or and then the working world, their world grows. It becomes enlarged with all of those experiences and different people, different cultures that they've met. And people that are introspective, that really spend time thinking about, well, what happened and why did that happen and why do I feel the way I do about it? They start to um, reevaluate sometimes some of those early opinions that were fostered on them. Prejudice is a big one. A lot of prejudices are formed in childhood. And then later in life, people through their experiences start to see things a little differently than what maybe was imparted to them by the adults around them in childhood. And then they have a choice. Do I continue or am I going to change the way I see things based on the experiences that I've had? Childhood has a huge bearing on the formation of your personality and the way you see things. But again, humans have choices. They can change the way they think if they're willing to do it. I think it's important as professionals and leaders to understand that humans are dynamic in that way and that certain experiences have led them to be the way that they are personally, obviously, but also professionally and leads their own decision making. I know in my own case, when I started thinking more about why I think the way I do and realizing that certain experiences that I had made me view the world the way I do. I also realized that other people are similar in the sense that they have a unique set of experience that affects how they see the world. It allows me to be more understanding, empathetic to the way people feel about things, knowing that they're influenced by experiences that were really different from mine. And so I don't expect everybody to see the world the same way I do. You asked me too, what I my personal philosophy of life is really some of the things that I've learned in, in thinking back over my life experiences, what caused me to believe the way I do. And so in, in my book, Breadcrumbs, I enumerated those in, the, in one of the last chapters. And I've learned through life, too, that I can do more, I do more than sometimes I think I can. A lot of that really goes back to some military experience I had in training, and that was something that the uh, trainers really push, and that is they push people to what they believe is their limit and then push them beyond that, and people are surprised to know that they can still perform, that they can actually do more than they thought they could. And that translates into life in other areas too. Your personal life, your business life, you can really do more than you think you can when you're really pushed to it. I believe things that are worked for are appreciated much more than things that are given that require no effort to achieve. You've probably experienced that in your life too. Things you have to work for, you appreciate them more than things that are just handed to you. I try to understand what people are attempting to convey when I'm listening to them rather than getting too hung up on the literal words of their speech. 
try to understand what someone is trying to convey to you. You've heard people say before when they're talking to you, things like, oh, what, what, well, what I meant to say was, that means they're struggling finding the right words to convey their thoughts, their meaning. I believe in the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That's really important. Sure. Well, and having balance within, I feel like that was a big theme over some of the things that you noted, having balance and taking time for that creative expression, taking time for your family. And I think in today's work culture environment, things have definitely shifted where it used to be you need to work 50 to 60 hours a week and you need to leave the office at six and get here at eight. And now it's more so we understand as leaders that to be at your most productive and efficient self, you need to have that balance. And so that's, I think, something, like I said, that has changed over the last few years. And so speaking to maybe a population that doesn't have a lot of balance or is trying to balance things as a military family, making military moves. Uh, what have you seen in your experience with veterans and improving mental health specifically for that population? That's a, a good question. And there's a, a lot that can be said about that. Some military families serve in places and times of peace. Other military families have served and will serve in times of war and the one spouse will be in a combat zone, risking their life on a regular basis, and other parts of their life will be in a peacetime environment where it's more like a, just an eight to five job, but with more structure. In my experience with military veterans, it depends a lot on what branch of the service they were in, when they served, where they were stationed, whether they were in it as a career, or if they were in the old days drafted, or in it for a short time, like I was in it for three years. I had a lot of experiences with people during that time, and they were they were all all different. And then I've seen people when they're out of the military, particularly career military people, that are going into civilian jobs, making that transition from a military life to a civilian job. And it's difficult for some of them because, let's say in particular, if they were an officer or a non-commissioned officer, they got used to being in control, being able to tell people to do things and expect them to be done without any lip about it. When you get into civilian life, people don't quite react quite that way. When you say jump, they say, not maybe not out loud, but they're thinking, why, why do I need to jump? Explain it to me. And, and so there's a, and that might frustrate somebody that just has gotten out of the military who's used to telling people to do things and expect them to do it immediately. So there's a big adjustment there. And if they realize that and think about it, they can make that, that adjustment a lot easier for themselves. It kind of goes back to thinking about listening first off, but also thinking about what the person is trying to convey and understanding that everyone's experience might be a little bit different. All of our, you know, unique means one of a kind. Some of our experiences are unique to each one of us. None of us have had the same exact experiences throughout life. They've, they've been all over the place, even being in the same family. If you're the oldest child, you have a different experience than the second child, the third child, 
the last child, all of those experiences are a little different. Your parents change over time. Their financial situation changes. The time they have to spend with one child is different from the time they have to spend with each of, say, three or four children. All of us come from a unique background, and recognizing that helps us to be more empathetic, I believe, in our dealings with others, to give people room rather than trying to control them in what they do, which doesn't work. Sure. Well, well said. And so, Phil, I really appreciate you joining me for the Security Clearance Careers podcast today. For more information on leadership and other career advice, you can visit news.clearancejobs.com. 